0: I'm going to try to. Uh, good morning. Uh, thanks for being here again. I'm going to kind of uh, keep with the um, the way we've been doing things for the last few weeks. I'm going to pick up in Psalm 119 as we begin um, and I'll read that for you. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever and i shall walk in a wide place for i have sought your precepts i will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame for i find my delight in your commandments which i love i will lift up my hands toward your commandments which i love and i will meditate on your statutes Let me open up a short prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you um, for this wonderful privilege that we have to meet together in your house with your people and to read about you and your word. And we just pray that you would um, illuminate our hearts and our minds and our time here and be acceptable in your sight. We love you. We thank you for all things in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, um, we got the colors going on here real quick on the text. Um, we're in uh, ex- uh, Exodus twenty, verse three, or Deuteronomy five, seven. We're focusing on the Exodus text uh, today. It's the first commandment, and the reason I put these translations here, um, I wanted to kind of highlight as we're reading in our in our English translations. Sometimes you'll see things in the footnotes. It, it's it's and it's worth time. Take it's worth it to look at the footnote and consider what's being said or what's being um, qualified. And here. In several translations, in the ESV, the NASB 95, the NRSV, the NIV, there's a footnote. It'll note, um, you shall have no other gods before or besides me. And oftentimes what you'll find is that when they make these qualifications, obviously, if you read in commentaries, you're going to see all kinds of debates about it, right? And you'll have commentators all over the spectrum approaching this from a different perspective and arguing over... The little intricacies of the text. And those can be important. Um, One of the things that they're arguing for here is what exactly do we mean? There's the the word, uh, the Hebrew word in there uh, is for most commentators, is translated before my face. And translation can be a very, very difficult task. Um, I'm so grateful that we've had so many great um, modern English translations, um, but every translation's an interpretation, and it's important sometimes for us to look at the details, and I think here is one of those, can be one of those instances, what exactly does this mean before my face, and um, different, <coughs> different writers have approached it different ways. Um, Just as an aside, um, you can look at the difference between these commentaries. Most of them will put "before me." The Christian Standard Bible, which is the kind of the more recent version of the Holman Christian Standard Bible, uh, they just put "besides," which I thought thought was interesting. Most of the other translations will prefer "before," but uh, or at least qualify it with in the footnotes. But um, and just for. For everyone's sake, going forward, there is a free resource out there called the Net Bible. Um, I'm not a huge proponent of the translation per se, not to say this bad, um, but one of the neat things about it is free. You can Google it and you can get it online. But one of the neat things about it is that they put the translators' notes in the below the text, and so you can actually uh, you can actually peer behind the window when you see a footnote and you don't. Ha- And there's nothing, you have no other resource, let's say, to give you some insight into the decision-making in the translation process. They actually do. And I I kind of, um, I put over here on on page two, the top, uh, a copy of the two footnotes from, the translation notes uh, from this particular passage. And they talk about the two things. The first thing that they mentioned I thought was interesting is when you look at the Hebrew language, Hebrew, unlike English, which is primarily an SVO language, meaning subject, verb, object. That's the normal you know, progression. If I use an example, Hebrew is not. It is primarily, I would say, a VSO, a verb, subject, object, but it can change, and that's the beauty of it. Uh, if I say, for example, Jackson threw the baseball. Well, that's what? Subject, verb, object. But in Hebrew, you can say that three ways, for example. Jackson threw the baseball means Jackson, not somebody else, right? But Jackson threw the baseball. Or if I changed the order and I said threw the baseball, uh, Jackson to John. Well, the emphasis, what they call fronting, the emphasis is on he threw it. He didn't roll it. He didn't fling it. He didn't pass it. He threw it. Or if you reverse the order again and you put the object first. Right? John, Jackson threw the baseball too. The emphasis is on John. He didn't throw it to Jimmy, he didn't throw it to Joe, he threw it to John. And so <clears throat> translators have to overcome some of these technical differences between the languages and sometimes it can be tricky. And you don't want to lose the impact of the emphasis. Right here we see evidence of it where they're actually, it's in the form of verb first, you shall not, but they front it with a negative low, low, no. It's emphatic, right? No, you shall not. Um, The second thing is this crazy word um, that they translate. It's actually a complicated word, but in front of me. What does that mean? Does that mean in a spatial sense, like in my presence? Or is this like in a hierarchical sense, ahead of me? And does this preclude other gods? Is this somehow saying that Acknowledging other gods? See, those are some of the questions that commentators, when they take these texts seriously, they end up getting into. And I think sometimes it can be helpful for us to consider that when we do, sometimes we come to these texts because we're so familiar with them, we just gloss over them. And it's helpful. Uh, I'd say, if anything, that's what the original language was helped me with, was, is it slowed me down. Because I was so familiar with some of these texts, it slowed me down and forced me to really think about it. And hopefully... This is bringing some of those things to light for you guys. But um, so in terms of these technical, the, the, the textual issues itself, um, this is an emphatic, imperative, negative command, but it implies a positive response. So it's not just a command that uh, is telling us to turn from other gods, but to also turn to the only and true God. Right. And so there's there's an implication to the commandment. Um, Briefly in terms of meaning This means that God must be acknowledged as the one and only true God This is a radical demand for monotheism um, It requires exclusive, absolute loyalty Our duty to God undeniably comes first over above all other duties This commandment is foundational And what gives God the right to make this kind of demand? See, I think we, we've, I've tried to point it out a few times along the way in some texts, the emphasis is upon God's identity as um, the creator. In other texts, it emphasizes God's identity as redeemer. In some texts, it emphasizes both. And I think it's important for us to remember, um, especially when we consider how this is; uh, these texts are interwoven in the covenant structure of the Old Testament. Um, I think one of the most foundational things, um, well, a foundational thing. Van, Cornelius Van Til, he was a, a Presbyterian um, scholar um, years ago, and he would point out um, to the students what he would call the Creator-Creature distinction. He said, "This is this is, in essence, one of the most fundamental things that you need to under, understand and come to grips with." It. He was speaking kind of in terms of, of terms of apologetics, but. He would draw a line on the board, and he would put a circle above the uh, the the line and one below. And he would say, "If, and if we could do this respectfully, let's say the top um, circle represented the the God, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Everything below the line is created. God is completely distinct, right? His Spirit, He is other. Everything below the line is created." This is what the Egyptians, uh, or what Israel, coming out of the context of bondage in Egypt for 400 years in a, in a polytheistic society, right? They had to understand this core principle. God is holy. He is other. He is the only God, right? And uh, there are huge consequences for that. It was, um, it was radical, This is a radical command, a radical statement. Um, The first commandment is foundational for all the rest. The first commandment is concerned about the object of our worship, God, teaching that only the true and living God must be worshipped. This commandment denies that all religions worship the same deity under different names. And it forbids the following. It forbids giving the glory due to God to any other, including the worship of saints, angels, or other creatures, It forbids joint worship services with other groups who deny the true God. It forbids religious neutrality, which is indifference, um, uh, showing indifference to the honor of God. And it also encourages a love and a passion uh, for the honor and glory of God. Um, Like I said, I've got about 30 more pages of additional reading from other commentators if you guys want it. I can give you my email address. I can forward it to you. It's just too much to print. Uh, But if you're interested and you want some other reading and see how other writers have reflected on this, it can be helpful, and I can send that to you. Um, I think what I want to spend the rest of our time doing here um, is kind of just walking through the text like we did last time. I felt like it was so fast last time. It was like, we need clean up on aisle seven, (laughs) you know. Uh, Hey, we've got text flying through these texts, just skipping rocks over the top of the surface of the text, but... Um, Hopefully, it just kind of increases our desire and our appetite to want to learn more. I'm going to do a little bit more of that today, so uh, hang on. Um, I put on here, Israel will know, and the Egyptians, surprisingly, and the Egyptians will know. Uh, We're going to find out what. Quick reflection, if we think about the plagues, what were the plagues? In a sense, what we're going to find out is that they represented God's sovereignty over the Egyptian uh, deities, these ten, these ten plagues, this very first commandment of the ten commandments, reflecting back about contextually, like we've talked about, what God did in Egypt, He's demonstrating His power over the gods of Egypt, and as the text is going to show, not just so that Moses would know and believe, not just so that Israel as a whole would know and believe, but so the Egyptians would know, and you know, you follow the text. When Israel left Egypt, a multitude went with them, a diverse multitude. There's some Egyptians who went too. Um, So let's think about that theistic spectrum real quick. If we started a spectrum here on theistic beliefs and we looked at, on one end, coming out of Egypt and ancient Near East in that time, you've got, um, it's polytheistic, many gods, right? And then you've got a sense if you move a little bit more towards Uh, Monotheism on the other side, you would have um, uh, henotheism, basically um, putting one God above the others but worshiping them all in some sense, Uh, one with primacy, let's say. Or then you could get to monolatry, which would be more like um, we're going to worship one God. We won't worship the others, but we recognize their existence in a sense, almost a sense of deference. And then you have monotheism. This was a stark command. This was, this was earth-shattering um, for the people of this place and time. Uh, the reference to other gods in the first commandment is not an affirmation of the existence of other deities. Commentators discussed this when I talked about issues in the text. This is one of the arguments that some commentators will, come, will, will have. Well, he's implicitly um, you know, accepting um, the existence of other deities. This is an acknowledgment of their allure. Right, of the negative effect they can have. Um, and I'm going to, we'll see some of these texts and some of the warnings about that very thing. Um, in fact, the old sermon, my kids have heard me re- mention this old sermon so many times they could probably quote it, but Thomas Chalmers, a famous Puritan, had a sermon, um, The Expulsive Power of the, new, of the New Affection. And basically, the premise is that we don't typically, um, When we have things in our lives that are, you know, almost like a God or a thing that we're all about, we don't typically just drop those things cold turkey. It's the expulsive power of some new affection that comes in and, and pushes the other away. We clutch on to something all the time. And I think what we're going to see here is that God's warning to Israel is just that. Um... So, um, we're going to go through the text quickly. And I'll make sure. If anyone can help me keep an eye on the clock, I don't want to go over. Is anyone. <laughs> we have anyone who's timely minded. I've got it right here, but if I get excited and start talking too much, I may go. I don't want to go over. But um, so, starting really quickly here on the text, I'm on page three under Old Testament text. Um, In Exodus 6, um, God promises his deliverance of Israel. And I, I just want to emphasize here what God is saying that he will do, right? I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under him. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you. I am the Lord. Um. And we go into chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like a God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be a prophet. We move down into verse 4. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment, demonstrating God's righteousness. Uh, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring my people out from among them. The Egyptians shall know. We'd move directly from that into the ten plagues. The Egyptians shall know. People of Israel shall know. We move to Exodus 14, crossing the Red Sea on page four, at the top of page four. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They were eyewitnesses. We'll see that in the New Testament, won't we? Um, Look in Exodus 19. Israel at Mount Sinai. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And if we move down uh, towards the last part of verse 2, there Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out to the mountain, saying, You shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, creator, authority. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Remember Babel? Among all the nations of the world, Deuteronomy 32, we talked about that Deuteronomy 32 worldview. He's looking back when God spread the nations, He gave them over. He disinherited them. He said, and I will create from you, Abraham, a holy people, a people for myself among all the nations. In 32, we see the golden calf. And this really starts bearing on our text. You're going to see this over and over and over again. We've been working from Genesis all the way up through Exodus Twenty and Deuteronomy 5, and in between with the Ten Commandments. But remember, this story continues on, and we're going to see the aftermath of some of this. For when the people saw that uh, the golden calf, Exodus 32, I'm in the middle of page 4. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. That was the role of a king. And for this, Moses, the, the man... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. What did he say? There in verse 4: These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Uh, to Aaron, to his credit, says, Tomorrow shall be a feast of the Lord, but too little, too late. Um, and the Lord says to Moses: I think the interplay here between the, the, the possession. Um, your people, my people, right? What does the Lord say? Go down for your people have, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. There's a sense in which both are true, right? Moses brought the people up, but we just got out of verses that emphasize that it was God's work. God did this, right? They have turned aside quickly from, out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden cabin have worshiped and sacrificed to it. These are your saying, and and said, these are your gods of Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord Lord said to Moses, I have seen, they have seen, he has seen this people, and it is a stiff-necked people. And what does he say? Now, therefore, let me alone, let my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. In order that, ding, 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 I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored God, and he reminded him of his covenant commitments, and he puts it back in God's court in a sense. Your people that you brought out. Let's get this straight, right? Um, Even look at the conversation when Moses confronts Aaron. What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord, speaking here of Moses, uh, burn, uh, burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil, for they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. And and for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. What about God? So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. And I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Wow. Okay. Remember we talked about um, the angel of the Lord. We talked about uh, the cherubim guarding the, the, the eastern entrance into the Garden of Eden. We talked about... The angel of the Lord with a flaming sword in his hand, guarding the entrance to the promised land. What do we see right here? I'm on page 5, the top of the page. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, then Mo, uh, um, for Aaron had let them break loose to the division of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? We heard this before, or we'll hear this later, actually, in the text. Joshua asked this question of... The man with a flaming sword in his hand, and he says, "Lo, No. Wrong, wrong question, right? We hear low again here in this text. which says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on the side of each of, you, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate throughout the camp in each of you. And the text just continues on. In Exodus, let's move to the bottom of page five, towards the bottom of page five. Um, Moses is going to make the new tablets after he destroyed the others. Behold, I will drive out before you. We have the covenant renewal ceremony here. Observe what I've commanded you this day. Behold, I will drive out from before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, all the ites, Okay, And what was this is significant because the ites lived where? In a promised land. God said, I'm going to drive them out. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Take care... Um, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they worship after other gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited you eat of this sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and your daughters war after their gods and make your sons war after their gods. It's pretty clear right up front early on this is going to be a problem. Oh, we... Five um, minutes, okay. Um, the text continues on in Deuteronomy. The Lord alone is God. We see that in the Shema. The emphasis there in Deuteronomy six, the great commandment, uh, with the Shema here, um, and we have another another uh, reference to this future time when they're going to be in the Promised Land. Um, It is the Lord your God, speaking in verse 11 there in Deuteronomy 6, It is the Lord your God who you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of other people who are around you. For the Lord is in your midst, is a jealous God. And then we have the reminder there about what there's to say to their sons and their children about... What does this mean, the meaning of these testimonies and statutes and the rules? And what it means, they give it in the context of the redemptive story of their history. It's contextualized for the people. They understand this, the meaning of these statutes and the rules and regulations are given to them in context of their history. In Deuteronomy 17, the laws concerning the kings. It was so important that when you have the laws concerning the kings, God said, hey, you're going to get to a point you're going to want a king above you and these laws concerning the king. They're supposed to write a copy the king was supposed to write a copy of the law and it is going to be approved by the by the, 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 the approved scribes and he was to read from it every day so that so that if you look at uh, at the very bottom of page six, so that that he may learn to fear the Lord by keep, his God by keeping all the words of the law and his statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up his brother above his brothers that he may not have turned aside from the commandment either to the right hand or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Right? In Numbers 33, the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab as they're going to enter into Jericho. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out. What's the emphasis on the word All. All of the inhabitants of the land from before you, and you shall destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And then we have the consequence. But if you do not drive them all out, then those who, uh, whom you let remain shall be barbs in your eyes, thorns in your side, it shall trouble you in the land in which you dwell, and I will do to you as I thought to do to them. That is that expulsive power of a new affection. You see the warning there? This, the Holy Land, if it's a sanctuary and God's presence is here, these people are to, be, to live distinct. And one of the ways that they do that is with the law. And that first commandment is the most foundational of all of them. It distinguishes them, them from the people around them. Right? And then we're going to see this play out again throughout the rest of the, of the historical books. We start with Judges. What do we have in Judges? God raised up, <laughs> they didn't do it. They had trouble. God would, out of his mercy, would raise up a judge. He would vanquish their enemies. And then they would turn. You see the, the repetitive sin cycle of judges repeat itself over and over and over again. And what does it say? And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. You see the, the consequence? You see the expulsive power of the new affection? who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals. And what did God do? And he gave them over. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. God in his mercy and his righteousness and his commitment to his covenant lists up judges. Eventually what happens we get into 1 Samuel when we find out what? After this whole period, the people eventually said that they wanted a king. And it's not just any king. Give, in verse Samuel 8, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Give us a king to judge us, the Lord said to Samuel. For they have not, the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, forsaking me and serving other gods. They still want another, they want to be like the other nations. It's diametrically opposed to their calling, right? To be a holy, distinct, righteous people living before God in a distinct land that he's given them, right? And we see this later on, 1 Kings, Solomon's benediction. At the very end of his prayer of dedication of the temple, Okay, I just encourage you to kind of read through these remaining texts I think um, especially we look at 1 Kings when Elijah uh, is uh, defeating the prophets of Baal Uh, there was no voice but there was no voice and no one answered at the very end of that passage there was no voice no one answered no one paid attention the true God spoke and they were witnesses they heard they saw these false gods they don 't speak. we find the same thing happen at king after king they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and eventually they were cast out you 're going to see also this you 'll see the emphasis of these things of exclusivity you 're going to see it in terms of loyalty and the effects of other gods and the major prophets you 're going to see it uh, all throughout the rest of the Old Testament and the Prophets and the historical books, um, I just want to point out in closing an emphasis on one final text, and it's in Luke. Uh, it's also Matthew, um, uh, but the Luke. Uh, I'm going off the Lucan account of uh, the temptation of Jesus. Uh, it's here on page three at the top of the page. You'll see it's under New Testament context, and I'll close with this: Luke four. Verses 5 and 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So, remember we said Adam was the son of God. He failed Israel, son of God, Israel has failed, right the true Son of God comes son of man, right functions as a son of God in analogy let's say to both Adam and to Israel. note it even says he was in the wilderness for forty days, and where are all what's the fo- what 's the foundation we call the um, antecedent or the donor text, the text that's behind driving some of these um, temptations in, in Christ's response. They're in the same period of time. Christ is in the wilderness. Israel was in the wilderness, right? The first temptation, turn the stone to bread. Well, God provided manna from heaven, right? The manna stopped when the Israelites went into the promised land and they says they ate from the fruit of the land that year, right? And this temptation, we're going back to the same thing. He is... Christ is, um, I forgot the word, uh, the word escapes me. But he is reenacting, in a sense, the same journey that the other sons of God had. And and unlike them, he successfully, uh, he he holds on to the truth of God's word. He does honor God. He does put God first. And he says, um, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Um, Unlike them, he was perfect in that he did put God first Um, I know that was fast I apologize for going a little bit over Um, if you have any questions or if you want any of that additional material let me know Um, and um, I'll close this out in a quick prayer Father we thank you so much um, for the truth uh, that's in your word about you, about us and uh, who we're called to be in your son and we just pray that you would uh, lift our hearts up as we um, Worship you together today in spirit and truth. We love you. We thank you for all things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.